Reading is just a habit you gotta form in all of life. Books don't change people's sentences. Reading good, solid, reform, Puritan literature, reading especially the classics, that's had the biggest impact on my life. Well, g'day and welcome to another episode of the Reformers Bookcast, a podcast put on by Reformers Bookshop. My name's Tom Eglinton, I'm the manager here at Reformers, and today we have a guest with us, the author of a new book, uh, Stephen McAlpine is his name. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Great to be with you. Uh, great to be across the miles and the, the lockdowns and all the things that we're, <laughs> we're going through. Yes. Uh, so Stephen's joining us from Perth and we're, we're over here in Sydney, so we're thankful for, for technology. And Stephen, you've just written this book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. But before we get to the book, um, I want to ask you, what do you, what do, you do? Uh, yeah, I juggle a few things, got a few hats. So I uh, work for City Bible Forum in a role uh, in a, a project called Third Space, which is seeking to bring uh, Christians and non-Christians together to have conversations about Jesus and maybe do some cultural evangelism, as we'd call it. And I do a couple of days a week at a church in Perth where I'm filling in for uh, an absent pastor, so preaching pastor, so um, mainly, the mainly just preaching, so I don't have to do all the admin stuff, which I'm pretty rubbish at anyway. Uh, and the odd podcast about books and the odd blog post, I think that's yes. plus li- plus the usual life of uh, family life and things like that. <laughs> that's great, and um, I, I appreciate your beard. Those, those oh, who uh, watch our bookcast would know that I just shaved mine off, but it's uh, yeah. good to see so, good to see people rocking beards around. It's not a lockdown beard either. It's 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 here for the long haul. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Um, so, Stephen, the, the book title is "Being the Bad Guys." Uh, why? What, what brought you to write this book? I, I think over the last uh, twenty years, I think uh, one of the things that I, struck me twenty years ago, or I thought was coming, was that we would be searching for relevance as Christians. That somehow we'd sort of fade to the side and we wouldn't be people that anyone cared about. And we had to find ways of engaging with our community. And I I went to Baker's Delight in Perth, and there was this bread shop sign in the window on a Sunday that said, Baker's Delight is open seven days. Whatever happened to the day of rest? I went, yeah, what did happen to the day of rest? It's kind of up and left. The sign said, whatever happened to the day of rest on it. It did indeed. Very good. So I went and got the sign. I asked Baker's Delight for the sign, (laughs) and I, I laminated it. And I thought maybe it's will fade quietly away and we've got to try to find ways to engage with people. You yeah. fast forward to the last federal election where the prime minister and the opposition leader are facing off with each other in parliament asking who is going to hell? Who do you think will end up in hell? And that was sort of the question of sexuality. Yeah. I think how do we get in a secular Australia to there <laughs> in those 20 years? It wasn't about relevance at all. It was about a deep, uh, or it wasn't even about people ignoring Christianity, it was Christianity was brought into the the public square and given a bit of a flogging for the way it's being perceived to be uh, a bit toxic, a bit unsafe, and Mm. certainly not getting on the agenda of what the progressive narrative is saying we need to do in terms of human identity issues. And it seems to be the, um, it's the point, I think, Christians view of sexual ethics, an orthodox view of sexual ethics from the Bible, that is the shibboleth point in our culture. If you sign off on it, you're a good guy. If you don't sign off on it, it's increasingly you're feeling the pressure. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll get there. You identify three areas, and we'll, we'll go into those, I think. But um, one of the things you talk about in your opening chapters is that previously, when when 
we moved from being a Christianized culture to being more of a secular culture where we accepted uh, and and sort of had space for all sorts of different uh, religions. You talk about how we it was it was almost like a marketplace um, where you go on a, on a Saturday morning and there's over there's the Buddhist stall and over there's the Muslim stall and there's the secular stall and oh good there's a spot for a Christian stall. And so um, you talk about how we, as Christians, um, set up our stall and started selling our wares, if you like, um, talking about Jesus in those terms. Do you, do you think uh, we still can do that? Do you think it was the right thing to do? Um, can, you, can you speak well, to that idea? What I think we thought was that the postmodern frame, or the hypermodern frame, I suppose, in a secular age would be neutral as far as the marketplace was concerned. And I you know, went to uni in the 80s and did a postmodern lit degree as well as journalism and thought, these ideas will never fly, the deep hostility towards Christianity. Yeah, yeah. But of course, they moved from the academy into the culture and popular culture particularly. And the Christian framework is seen not as just one among many neutral perspectives, but hard secularism is saying, no, those perspectives are, they've got problems with them, especially Christianity. And part of that's to do with, we've had uh, the intersectional argument that Christianity has had power for too long. It's mm. used language as a power str uh, struggle in the sense that all the struggle is about the use of language. And Christianity has used its language to hold power. And it's used its control to keep other people down. So, so, what, what's, so what's an example of that, sorry, using language to... To control, uh, to control a situation. I think uh, even if you think about the term queer and queer studies and yeah. how that's done at a university setting, it, queer meant the, trans, the nature of being transgressive. And so it was always seen that queer was used as a word of you're weird or something like mm. that. And then the word was taken back by the queer community and said this is a good word yeah. and we're going to take that word back. So it's how language is used. But you also see it in the sense in our cancel culture that Douglas Murray, who's an atheist, would say... The, the, the language of saint and sinner <laughs> yeah. and who's in and who's out has been co-opted to a very progressive agenda, mm. whereas the language and it's not even just the language, it's the thought, it's the world of language and the world of ideas that the Christian framework has is sort of been co-opted to this new sort of, uh, this new gospel. I think there's a new gospel that's saying we've got a vision of human flourishing and a direction in life that Christianity's failed to take us to. Mm. And it's not that Christianity could offer us something good again. It's had its time and it's dangerous and we want to do a post-Christian experience. But it sort of smuggles in all of the Christian frameworks about a future we're heading towards, a, a sort of a, a, a resurrection moment, yeah. uh, very earthly bound resurrection, but a resurrection moment for our culture nonetheless. Yeah, and it, it is fascinating for me. I've been, while I was reading your book, I was also reading Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and We'll have him on the show in, in a, a little while. Um, but And so we won't talk in too much depth. But it, all of those ideas have come in so subtly. And we, we didn't even... It wasn't like a public announcement. No. You know, no. We're, we're all going to change our mind on these things, guys. You know, it was. It's just been um, smuggled in, if you like, and now it's assumed knowledge so that my neighbour next door thinks like you're describing. That's right. And uh, what I'd say is that we, we're busy looking at hard academia to be promoting those arguments. But say the same-sex marriage debate, for example, it wasn't about um, queer studies. It was about that nice couple next door. How could they yes, possibly yes. be wrong? Yeah. So it's politics is downstream of culture. So culture really set the agenda on this. So Disney, Netflix, whatever it is, Amazon, uh, the mobile, it, you can't underestimate the use of technology and how technology has driven this. So yeah. you get a, 
a young transgender person in the United States who's got an Instagram account that can access your child in their room mm. in Australia. Yeah. And it's, it closes the gap between the hard edge of that um, sort of secular age, as I call it, and the average person, because you're bringing Babylon around in your hip pocket in a phone. Mm. And so there's no way of curating what's a good piece of information, what's a bad piece of information. And unless you've got a framework for saying, you know, this is where God's going in, in the world, uh, you'll very easily fall for the, I guess, the, the, the good news stories of how once I was blind and I was locked into my uh, heteronormative aspect of life and now I can see. Yeah. It's a salvation story. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and part of the problem, I think, is that in, in terms of social media, we approach social media as, uh, as um, I guess, uh, slug, sluggish consumers. We, we, <laughs> we scroll through and we take in all these stories, even in, even in bite-sized form, um, and that they slowly shape our, the narrative that's in our mind. You're, you're exactly right, I think. Oh, it's what's it's what's happening, and it's it's the biggest disruptor, I think, is the social technology aspect of it. And we and we we came to it as it, as if it were neutral, and but you can't come to anything like that as if it's neutral. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, you know, to paraphrase it, uh, we shape our tools, and then they shape us, and that's exactly what's happened. <laughs> um, and and you mentioned in your book, uh, I'll just I'll read a, a a sentence or two around the the narrative that we're told because we're told. Um, that, as you say, the, the secular narrative is the, the gospel of self-realization. Um, and so we, we get worried about that. But you say uh, our primary concern is or ought to be not that our personal lives will become harder, nor that our children will have to grow up in a hostile sexual setting, nor even that we might lose our jobs because of our faith. Rather, it is that the rapid rejection of this binary understanding of the world will both destroy and be used to destroy those who've been made in the image of God. It's a rejection of God himself, and human flourishing is at risk because of this rejection. Uh, and so can you, can you speak to those, those ideas a bit? Yeah, I, I speak to them because I, I, I use that mantra quite a bit because at the moment it doesn't look like that's what's going to happen. Mm. There's a lot of Christian capital in the culture at the moment that is being used, and someone said that the post-Christian framework Post-Christian people are squatters on Christian land. They're using uh, the capital that's being built up of how Christians under the Christian framework gives us an understanding of uh, the dignity and value of every human being and who they are, uh, that the creator-creature distinction is a safety net, mm -hmm. that even people like Tom Holland, who's not a Christian, and Douglas Murray are saying the worth of a human being in the Christian framework uh, is grounded in the Bible's understanding of humans being created equal. And you can say all you want about human rights in a post-Christian setting, but the foundation doesn't give you any framework for saying that if you don't have the Christian framework. You're going to have to smuggle it in and then say it's not belonging to you. But I think you're almost moving to a situation where we're going to get to, again, persons and non-persons, <laughs> yeah. if you know what I mean. And we were there already when it comes to issues of the womb. Yep. Uh, who's yep. a person who's not a person? And uh, you know, it's it, that's the situation I think we find ourselves in. And uh, I've forgotten his name for the moment, but just that great uh, line by a very grumpy, probably slightly more progressive theologian who said, if in 100 years' time the Christians are the people who are not uh, killing their unborn or killing their old people, we'll have done well. And it's that whole uh, idea that... That's pessimistic, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's huge issue, isn't it? Because 
that tells you, and Tom Holland and Douglas Murray and all these guys are saying, don't assume those things in a, in a culture. Mm. When you take away an understanding of the God who creates people in his image, uh, the trajectory of that does not look good. Mm. And I think Christians can say, not just made in God's image, but recreated him in the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The Christian community has something to say to this. And part of the thing I wanted to do in my book was say this isn't about individuals sorting it out any more than it was individuals getting it wrong in the first place. <laughs> it's about the church together. How are we, how are we operating? Yeah, that, it's interesting, isn't it? Because even when I think about how we should fight this, I mean, you, you talk about how we've bought into this narrative and instead we should see that the Christian uh, belief system or, or the Christian religion is actually the best thing for human flourishing. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, we need to have it right in our own minds individually that not, we shouldn't buy that narrative. We should be preaching God's narrative to ourselves so that we see that this is the way to human flourishing. But you're expanding that even more and saying, no, you, you can't do that by yourself. That's not going to do anything. That, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, pastoring a church, when people come new to the church, I'm thinking... Uh, they're still coming as a consumer. Their first thought isn't, what is this church's perspective on eschatology? They're mm-hmm. saying, what's here for my kids? Are there programs I can get involved in? How can I use this church to create this uh, mini Ibiza we have as a family <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and work our best family? Now, I think the pandemic has shown that up a little bit, that it's pushing. If you were going to a church that had seven uh, sermons on uh, how your marriage can be better or your finances can be better, the pandemic's shown that up. I think the big, deep story of God's work in the world, deep discipleship of our young people, we're not going to get away with a chubby bunnies light evangelical you know, <laughs> youth group. Our young people are going to have to swing deep into the Christian roots that we've got and to in order to swing out into the world that they're living in because it's going to be much more bracing and hostile. And the church community has to look thicker and better than the bright and shiny mm ultra community you know other communities that were being offered i think yeah yeah and and you you talk about that so you, in your you sort of have three sections where you talk about sexuality uh power and self-actualization uh and then you sort of, you almost reflect that in your your point that you make here around um teenagers and the things that they don't have as part of their fundamental worldview uh mm. you say um they lack they centre around, as in complaints that they have or worries that they have, centre around lack of meaning and purpose, loss of identity and the risk of never being forgiven, um, which I'm sure yeah, you could roughly align yeah. into those sort of yeah. categories. But, but yeah. um, you, So what you're saying is that, that you need to, we, we need to have a robust theology around all of these aspects. We do, and it's interesting that it was a Scripture Union person who was asking me for some help about ideas about videos that she was shooting and i just asked her what are the three or four things that young people are worried about in schools and forgiveness was number three i could have picked identity and meaning and purpose yeah, yeah. but to go that went through me too it's like whoa what's that about and it's about cancel culture that if i get something wrong who is there to forgive me and so when we're told in our cultures at the moment you've got to fess up to all these things you've done you go and then what mm. then what is there a way back is there forgiveness and people just double down because they know if i don't double down i'm done for and so douglas murray talks about that as we don't we have nowhere to go all we have is a culture of fiery denunciation and for people my age we're going i'll probably you know die before that's (laughs) comes to its full flowering 
But the average 20-year-old at the moment is very concerned about all of these things. And yeah. if I fall afoul of uh, the culture, is there any group that would offer me hope or forgiveness? And you'd want to make sure that if someone who's been cancelled by the culture comes to church and asks, how do you guys do forgiveness? Oh, just the same way as you do. <laughs> we <laughs> haven't not. got much to offer them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, now, changing gears just a touch, uh, culture wars are something that we're talking a lot about. It seems that uh, as we see our culture shift, uh, Christians feel like there's only a, a small, uh, you know, maybe two ways of looking at it. We can either attack or we can go into hiding. Um, what's, what are your views on, well, maybe can you define culture wars for us first and then what are your views on culture wars? Yeah, I guess uh, I, I, if you think of that, Marxist ideology died in one form uh, when the Berlin Wall came down, but the framework of thinking of the struggle uh, was implanted into the internal person. So the culture wars are really about the identity issues of who we are as people, and they seem to be pitted very left and very right. And Mark Sayers uh, makes a great line, Melbourne pastor, that uh, the progressive narrative of the secular framework is they want the kingdom without the king. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. They want all the good stuff of uh, justice and all those things, but they don't need Jesus. And I think the flip side to that, and this is uh, something I coined, I think, uh, the hard perspective on the right on this is we want Christendom without Christ. Mm. We'd be very happy for a very conservative framework of life, but we don't really need Christ in the middle of that. We just want to return to conservative values. Yeah. And so you see that even in the um, uh, the last census, which had not religion, not religious anymore, a tick no on the, and everyone's, oh, that's terrible. But the flip side was of that was, uh, another campaign that said, don't go to church anymore, but still religious, but still hold Christian values, tick yes. And I'm going, I don't think we want that either. I don't yeah. think we want a conservative perspective simply because it's conservative, or we want a Christian perspective. So you're getting these two culture wars fighting across the top of each other about what vision of human flourishing uh, is going to win the day. And so they're fighting for a almost a an earthbound a telos, an eschatology of where history is going and how we get there. So everyone wants a great history, a great future. <laughs> They're just very polarizing views of how to get it. If you then put the church in there, you're going, the church is going, there's some things I agree with about the kingdom, but we want the king. Yeah. And there's some things I agree with about Christendom, but we want Christ. Yeah. How do we walk that line in such a way that we're sort of ticking everyone off? Because <laughs> we want to say, actually... You don't fully understand this. This is already, the battle's already won in Christ. He is our king and we're shaped by him, not by these culture wars. Very hard, you know, I'm still, we're still in the middle of figuring out where that's going to go. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so then I guess you, you've just described the culture wars being um, seeking our version of human flourishing, I guess, by political means. Mm. Um, should we then, if, if culture wars are not, really where we want to run down. We don't want conservatism for conservatism's mm. sake. Um, mm. what, what then, how, we sh how should we engage with culture? Should we just disengage yeah. entirely? Should we say, well, polit politics doesn't matter? Um, no, yeah, that, that, that would be an accusation, I think, if you were to, because I think the political, you know, I'm good friends with some uh, senior federal <laughs> politicians so, who do great work. And I, I think political engagement, while it's still possible, uh, is something to do. I think good order is given to us by God. Mm. Governments are given to, to us by God. If you're ever going to say there was a 
uh, toxic culture that should be swept away. It would have been Rome in the first century, but Paul still said that we should pray for our leaders. So I think the engagement issue is saying, how much can we push in a secular framework um, that says this is a space where no one gets to call the shots? Now, secularism itself is a worldview. It's not the neutral perspective. But at the moment, I think law, politics, the arts, those are things we should engage with. But I do think we're a little bit like the ice, uh, the polar bear on the iceberg that's <laughs> getting smaller and smaller. Our ground and maneuver, place of maneuvering is more is increasingly difficult. So, you know, for example, uh, you, if you're a, in, the, in a mental health role and you want to sign off to be a, a clinical psychologist in the next 10 years, you're going to have to sign paperwork that says, yeah. I agree to these things about sexuality. That may preclude Christians from going into mental health roles. Mm. Your, your Christian schools are going to have to make a decision, how much government money should we take? Because we may have to sign off on anti-discrimination legislation that we don't agree with its foundational premise. So it's not like I think we're going to get a hall pass just to do what we like. I think it will get squeezed. But use the spaces wisely. I think we will become a community that's um, a creative minority on the edge of the culture rather than a seat at the table. And we have to find out ways... Uh, to engage uh, wisely in that setting. Yeah, good. So I guess I guess the worst case scenario, right? From a, it, it, mm. we, so you're saying it's good that we you know get the the Christian lobbies out there and and um, seek righteousness in our even just for the sake of reducing God's judgment on our nation, right? Um, oh, exactly. We, we should really seek to get abortion and things like that out of the out of the picture. But even if all of that disappears and we're no longer listened to. Um, that's the worst case scenario. What what would a Christianity look like in that scenario that, that you think would be you know, yeah. worthwhile pursuing? Robust, yeah. Look, I still think we haven't bottomed out on it. What I think it will happen is that the communities that survive, the Christian communities that survive will be communities that are much more transparent with each other, within each other. Mm -hmm. They'll be connected by network more than denomination, I think. They'll be connected by... Uh, being much more localized, and they'll be also be connected by saying we're going to drive deep into our Christian story, and we're going to live lives where we have to maybe support each other a bit better financially, mm -hmm. uh, and not live this atomized, disconnected life. And Dale Kuhn in his book Sex and the I World says D this individualism that we have, Christians are bought into it, but two of the key problems with it, uh, with this sort of a hard individualism in which we're all expressing ourselves are loneliness and anxiety. <laughs> and here we are in a culture with a mental health tsunami. Yeah. And if we can be the people that have qualified people, even in those mental health areas that can help help people in our community, as at the same time that we're sharing the gospel news with people, I think that Christianity, you know, let's not write Christianity off. <laughs> the secular narrative is that secularism has just done this. Yeah, yeah. And Christianity's done this on not the true. escalator on the way down. That's not true. <laughs> History doesn't bear that out. Yeah. And don't underestimate the spirit of God um, transforming the generations of people. Like uh, going to university, Christian unions in Australia the last few years have said they've never had so much interest hmm. from young people who've never heard the gospel before. And you've got to say, why? Well, it's because the ground's been raised. These are people brought up to not even know that there's two testaments, never mind 66 books. Yeah. <laughs> and they're hearing this, those Christians are terrible people. And then they meet some and they go, they're terrible people, but 
And but, but, but I kind of like him. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's, he's a good bad guy. He may be a bad guy, but he's our bad guy. Yeah, that's it. No, no, well, it's, it's fascinating you say that because, I mean, um, I'm, I'm 30 and people who were graduating university at the same time as me I, in my um, graduate work at a, at a multinational sort of oil and gas company, they would look on at uh, me. I got married before I finished uni, had my first kid, you know, early on and, and, and everything crazy in, that they would think, right? And they're out there going, yeah. you know, playing the field and all that sort of thing. And they would look at me and they go, actually, I kind of want that. Can, yeah. you know, what, what, what do you do to get that? And then I'd tell them, and I'd, and I'd talk in categories that they couldn't even understand anymore. Things like family, they couldn't define. Love, they had no idea what it was. Um, yeah. And it was, but, it, but you're right in that the life itself was quite compelling to them. And I think maybe we need to lean into that a bit harder. That part of the issue before the same-sex marriage debate in Australia was that we hadn't really pitched a fantastic vision of what human mm. marriage under God looks like and why God gave marriage. And we hadn't pitched positive stories as much as we could. And in a yes-no campaign, <laughs> you're always going to look <laughs> terrible oh, as the no. Right. There's no way around that. And so, <laughs> it's just a negative it, word. <laughs> I know, that's right. Yeah, it's perhaps the most negative word. <laughs> and um, it, I think showing life together. Now, I don't think, I think church is for Christians, okay? So I'm yeah. learning my colors to the mass. And non-Christians can come into that setting. But I want them to come in a little bit discombobulated. Yeah. And this is why when I used to say, if you get on Q&A 20 years ago, it was how can we put the non-crazy person up there to make Christianity look as sane as possible, where we say we all have the same vision of human flourishing, mm. except we're a Christian. I'm going, no. If I get on Q&A, which is never going to happen, um, <laughs> and I'll only get on once if it does, I'll say we have a completely different understanding of how the world is put together than you. And I think Christians can afford to have their apologetic to be more angular, not angry, but more angular, that it... This doesn't fit. If all the paradigms you're talking about in the secular frame are true, then Christianity does not domesticate itself to that. Mm, mm. It does not lock into a nice, safe place in it. It upends that whole narrative. And it can do it joyously, but it's quite a, it, can, it has to be doing it in a way that challenges. And Mark Sayers, again, says there's a, a, the beautiful apocalypse, he calls it. He said it's all bright and shiny, but it's a facade in our culture. And you, at 30, your friends are going, I know that I should like playing the field and doing this, that, and the other and delaying marriage and kids. But, you know, the Bundaberg rum ad from years ago where the bears were standing in the corner of the par having a good time and the old guys look over and go, those bears know how to have a good time. And we want to be the bears <laughs> having a good time and everyone looks on wistfully. <laughs> Only in Australia will we have an interview with a Bundy ad read. That's true. <laughs> uh, there's no, there's no uh, promo drop there. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're right. Um, and, and the way you put it is what we believe about Jesus is absolutely weird and often off-putting to the modern mind, um, but perhaps it's time to be more angular, as you say, in the public mm. sphere and lose the desire to be seen as sensible. And I like mm. that. You know, what, we, we are the crazy ones, but we also know how to have, <laughs> the, you know, yeah. we also have the best vision for Christian flourishing and we'll show you. Yes, and I think we want to do it and... Uh, Greg Sheridan, in his book, uh, you know, God is Good for You, um, said, you know, and he's a journalist, so he's he's hardcore. He's been in the Canberra scene and the international journalism scene for a long time. And he said, um, nothing wrong with a bit of conflict, but you can be happy warriors. Yeah. You, can, you don't have to be the grim, 
you know, there's joy in following Jesus and serving Jesus, not just in the age to come, in now. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, that's, that's great. And um, that was the sentence that caught me actually at the end of your introduction, uh, that we should live holy, happy, loving and joyous lives that compel as many people as they repel to be the best bad guys we can be. Yeah. And, and Stephen, it's been great having you on the show. We'll, we'll uh, tie it off there. And um, I think it's enough to show people that they should get into this book, Being the Bad Guys, uh, so they can make a difference in this uh, culture that we find ourselves in now. Great, Thomas. Thank you so much for uh, that. It was a, a great to chat with you and uh, talk about those things. Thanks, Stephen. And uh, if you're tuning in, make sure you subscribe to the Reformers Bookcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we've got plenty more where that came from.